Anyway, it's fantastic to uh, to be back into Romans, and um, if you've been visiting in the last, if you've just come in the last two or three weeks, um, this will be a bit of a mystery to you. But if you've been around for the last two or three months, you'll know that we have been doing a series in the book of Romans from the Bible, um, and we're back into it now between now and Christmas. Uh, we took three weeks break from that to look at the Advent conspiracy. Um, because we're back into Romans, that doesn't mean we're now not thinking about how to do Christmas well or celebrating Jesus' birth big, big style. We're going to be doing that, as you've just heard. But uh, we thought it was important to take some time in November to talk about how we were preparing for Christmas, just to give ourselves time to think and plan. And so that's why we took a little break from Romans. Um, and so we're jumping right back in at chapter 7 today. So if you've got a Bible, or you've got the Bible on your phone or your uh, iPad or something like that, um, some sort of device, um, I'd love you to turn that up to chapter 7. Um, and then we've got two weeks on chapter 8 leading into Christmas. And in fact, excitingly, uh, next week, Brian's going to be teaching us on the first part of chapter 8. And then uh, we'll pick up uh, the end of chapter 8 before Christmas. And then after our New Year break, we're jumping back into the rest of the book. Now, we've been doing this series, I think we've done five weeks. This is the sixth session. And uh, honestly, um, I didn't really know what I was in for when I started to look at this stuff um, properly and to study it. I've always been aware that yeah, Romans is a fairly heavy book. It's pretty foundational. It's fairly dense. I'm not sure that I've really particularly studied it myself. Is anyone else needing sheets? Because if you ask, that your hand up. Thanks, guys. Um, so I just, but I really, really did sense that the Lord say, just do Romans. It, it, it's the right time to do it. And as we've done it, a number of you have fed back various things to me. The thing, the overarching sort of sense that I get is that this, this series, this book um, is foundational to who we are as believers. And actually it's foundational to what God wants to do in our church. And so uh, one person, um, it was Tim over here, who came to me a few weeks ago and said, do you know what, what this is, is it's like putting the mortar between the bricks of the building that we're building. And I believe that God wants to do some fantastic things. He already is doing some amazing things, but there's, there's, there's so much more he wants to do in the life of this church, in the life of our community, in our city. He's got some huge plans. And it just feels to me like what this, the study of this book is able to do for us is to just really solidify some of those deep foundations, what it is that God has done for us who it is that we are as believers, what that means. Um, I've shared a couple of pictures with you as I've gone through this. I, I mean, I had no idea that this was how, how God, God has been changing me through this as I, as I um, soak this up, I suppose. And a couple of pictures that I've shared with you. One, I, these are, I mean, I think they're for me. They might be for you as well, but I'll share them with you anyway. But, and I've, I've shared a couple of these before, but I felt like the Lord said he wanted a blood-soaked church meaning soaked in, the, in Jesus' blood. Now, these images are, aren't quite aren't very nice to think about, but they're very profound. I felt like God also said that, that those who are marked by his blood will stand out against the culture of the day. And then just yesterday, I was kind of pondering on this and thinking about this, and I just had this image in my mind. And, um, it, you know, we, we, we talk about, there's a, there's a song actually that we sing sometimes, to the cross I look, to the cross I cling. We talk about clinging to the cross. And I had this image of not clinging to the cross at the foot of the cross, but actually trying to jump up and literally embrace Jesus while he was on the cross. Now, that's a weird image. And it kind of like makes me go, 
oh, I don't, <laughs> you know, I, that's, that's, but actually, the more I thought about it, the more powerful I realized it was that this is what Jesus was asking me, encouraging me to do, to actually embrace him while he's on the cross suffering the penalty for my sin. Now, that's quite deep. Sorry, I'm, it's all gone quiet. I've got suddenly heavy. I didn't plan to start like this. I didn't plan to start like this. But anyway, that's what I think God's doing through this series. It's certainly what he's doing in me. Um, and I'm really encouraged by that. Hopefully you are too. Um, let's just do a quick resume of where we're up to. Uh, previously in Romans, we, we've, we've, uh, we've sort of, we're about half to two thirds of the way up this hill. Okay, we're in, uh, as I said, we're in chapter 7. Um, so previously in Romans, uh, we've, just to summarise where we've kind of come from, that's not really working for me, guys. Can you forward that for me? Um, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That's the kind of introductory statement. Um, then all have sinned. Everyone needs the gospel because all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, religious or rebellious, have sinned and fallen short of God's standards. If you remember, I said that it's a little bit like this, that Paul paints a really dark background and then against that dark background, he shines this amazing, brilliant diamond, this jewel. And what that diamond is, is the, 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 the message of the gospel, that God's righteousness is available to all of us because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that his blood paid the price for our sin, and that we, therefore, consequently, are justified, justified, we are made right through our faith in Jesus, and only through our faith in Jesus, not because of anything that we have done. We didn't earn this, we can't earn it, this is what Jesus did. And like Abraham, our being made right in God is a result of us choosing to put our faith in him. And uh, this sort of little summary, the first five chapters explain this, um, that's a fancy word, justification. That's in other words, that's what God's done for us. And the next three chapters, are explain, which we're in the middle of now, are explaining what God is going to do in us, or sanctification. How, we, how it is that we, God's people, are made holy despite our sin and our mess because of the gospel, because of what he's done. Now, I want to show you a short video clip which will summarise all of this and just catch us up to speed. It's just a couple of minutes. If you could play that for me, guys. Paul's letter to the Romans. Check out the first video where we explored who Paul was and why he wrote this letter, and where we traced the core ideas through chapters 1 through 4. That humans are an amazing but hopelessly screwed up and sinful mess, and so need to be saved by God's grace. That people are saved by trusting in what Jesus the Messiah did for them, and not simply by trying to obey the laws in the Torah. And that God's purpose all along was to have a multi-ethnic family of Abraham that's spreading throughout the whole world. So in the remaining three sections of the letter, he's going to develop a whole bunch of ideas that he's planted here in the beginning, but now draw out their implications. In chapter 5, Paul begins by saying that when people trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for them, they are justified through faith, by which he means to be forgiven and put into a right relationship with God, and also given a place within God's family. Now he wants to show how that truth should reshape every part of their lives. Because God is not only making a new family for Abraham, he's making new kinds of humans, a whole new humanity in Jesus. 
This is why Paul goes back to the first human character in the biblical story, Adam, whose name means humanity. Paul says, Adam and all humanity after him have chosen sin and autonomy from God. And so now they face God's judgment. They've become slaves to sin's influence, and it's all resulted in death. He then contrasts Adam with Jesus, who Paul says is a new Adam, a human who perfectly obeyed God in an act of sacrificial love and who now offers his life as a gift to others so that they can be justified before God. And so Jesus stands as the head of a whole new humanity that's being transformed by his love and his gift. Which leads Paul to chapter 6. Paul reminds these Christians in Rome that when they chose to follow Jesus, they made a choice to leave the old Adam-like humanity and to enter into the new Jesus humanity. And he highlights their baptism as a sacred symbol of that transition. Their old humanity has died with Jesus, and their new humanity was raised with Jesus. And so now our lives are joined to Jesus' life. What's true of him is now true of us. It's when we accept our Our identity as new Jesus-like humans were liberated to become what we were always made to be, wholehearted people who love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, if creating this new humanity was all... Thank you. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Amazing what you find when you do a bit of Googling. (laughs) There's a whole website devoted to explaining whole books of the Bible. They haven't quite done them all yet. They're about a quarter of the way through or something. Um, I did post a link to that on uh, the church facebook page so and on twitter so if you have if you can access that have a little look and and there's there's actually two videos the first video is about seven minutes and it takes you through the introduction to romans and all of the first four chapters that was just a summary of it and then the next video takes the rest of the book uh, of which that was the first part it'd be really worth having a little look um, at you see what we concluded last time when we looked at chapter six three weeks ago was that god's grace frees us from sin but it isn't, doesn't mean it, that's a license for us to sin. And if you remember, we talked about two particular sort of things. We talked about how it is that dead men don't sin. In fact, the key verses there written on your sheets, uh, 6.14, that sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. So whilst we're dead to sin, unfortunately, that doesn't mean it still can't influence our lives. It can't force itself on us. It doesn't have the power to dictate our behavior uncontrollably we're not under sin's control we do have the power to fight and if you remember we also looked at this part which was that freed slaves don't take orders from old masters and i sort of introduced you to the concept that you know imagine if you went to work in a new job and your old boss phoned up and said can you just he said no i'm not taking your instructions anymore we do have a new identity in jesus we can stand up against sin by remembering who we are We can load up the right operating system, the Jesus mindset, not the sinful mindset. That we can stay away from sin by getting close to God, by practicing the presence of God, which is what Paul encouraged us to do a couple of weeks ago, leading into this Advent season. So we're missing out a chunk, uh, a little little chunk now, um, and we're jumping to chapter 7 and verse 7. Just so you know, the bit that we've missed out, Paul just continues along the same line, using a couple of different metaphors. He he continues with this idea of slaves and slavery. He says, um, you know, actually he uses two different analogies, one's slavery and one's marriage. Some people think that's the same analogy, but that's not true. Um, You know, uh, he he says you can't be slaves to sin or and slaves to God. 
It's one or the other. And similarly, he talks about the whole thing. If, if, you're, married to, uh, if, if you're married to your spouse, um, you can't then go and marry another spouse. But if your first spouse dies, then you can. You are free to marry a second spouse. Simon Ponsonby describes this, I love this, saying this. Paul is saying, this is Ponsonby, that being a Christian and being also wed to the old law of Moses at the same time is like being wed to your new spouse whilst dragging your old one around in a coffin with you. That's a bit odd, isn't it? A bit odd. We just sung this morning, didn't we? Once exiled by sin, separated by my transgressions, now welcomed in, you're calling me home. You found the song. Sam was asking me yesterday what I was preaching about. I told him and he went away to have a really big think about what we could sing that would... uh, And he found the song. Let's look at chapter 7 and verse 7. I'm going to just read this. I'm going to take it in two sections. I'm just going to comment on the first section and then take the second one. Let me read it. I'm reading it from the NIV version of the Bible. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was, Paul says, had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's not the most straightforward of passages, is it? Paul, as we've described in previous sections, anticipates more of the questions that might come as he sets forth his argument. So, Paul, you're saying that the old law, the old law of Moses, is it produces sin and it produces death. So, Paul, is that law in itself sinful and wrong? Paul's answer, no. It's not the law that's sinful. So, Paul, if we're not under the law, we're under grace now, that's what you're saying, do we need this law at all? And Paul's saying, yes, we do, because it shows us our sin. That's what this passage is all about. The key to understanding this is in verses 7 and 8. The main purpose of the law, Paul says, is to show us the character of our sin. So he says that the law defines us. He says in verse 7, you know, the law said, don't covet. He says, it wasn't until I saw that law that I knew what coveting really was. And also the law reveals sin in us. And Paul says, not only did I understand what coveting was, the more sinful I realised I was. And then he goes into this kind of little interesting bit where he says, well, sin was dead, meaning dead in himself, dead in me, until the law came along to show me what it was. Not, that doesn't mean, he's not saying, I never sinned. He's saying, my understanding and realisation of what sin is didn't exist until the law came along to say, here's what the law is. And I was able to look at it and say, oh, well, I don't match up. Therefore, that shows me that I'm a sinner. If we're not trying to follow God's law, how will we know whether we're doing it right or not? In fact, Paul goes further. He argues that the law doesn't just show us our sin. The law actually provokes sin in us. 
The law of God provokes sin in us. There's a famous theologian called St. Augustine who wrote about this in a book called Confessions. He describes how as a boy, I reckon a bunch of us will relate to this, as a boy, he and some of his mates spotted a really great looking pear tree on someone else's land. It was loaded with ripe fruit. And he described how the adventure that they were going to have was to go and steal the fruit. So late at night, secretly, they go over the fence, they shake the tree, and they carry off all these pears. And this is Augustine quoted. He says, this was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest away to the pigs. Our real pleasure was in doing something we were not allowed to do. I had plenty of better pears of my own. I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away, and all I tasted in them was my own iniquity. And here's the giveaway, which I enjoyed very much. See, the truth is, sin is enjoyable. Sometimes it's the sheer illicitness of it that brings us the pleasure. I've put a quote on your sheet from Tim Keller. The underlying motives of sin in a box there. It says, we have a deep desire to be in charge of the world and in charge of our lives. We want to be our own sovereign. Every law that God lays down is an infringement on our own absolute sovereignty. It reminds us that we're not God and it prevents us from being sovereign to live as we wish. In its essence, sin is a force that hates any such infringement. It desires to be God. Think back to the Garden of Eden. What was the first temptation? You will be like God if you eat this fruit. That was the essence of the first sin. It's the essence of ours too. And Keller goes on. It's not written on the sheet, but he goes on. Since the essence of sin is the desire to play God, to have no infringements on our own sovereignty, then every law that we encounter will stir up sin's original force and power within us. The more we're exposed to the law of God, the more sinful that sinful force is going to get stirred into action. Do you get this? And Paul describes in detail how this happened in his own life. And he talks about this one commandment, suggesting that the commandment that really did for Paul was the one that says you shall not covet. Covetousness, which means being jealous, wanting stuff that somebody else is. You see, Paul had grown up as a Pharisee and they had only thought of sin in terms of external actions related to the law. In their minds, you weren't actually guilty of a sin unless you did something externally, like murdered somebody or stole something or committed adultery. Now, Jesus, when he came into conflict with the Pharisees, which he did on many occasions, one of the most kind of sharp conflicts he had was that he defined and interpreted the law a lot more radically than they did. He said, it's not just don't commit murder, it's don't stay angry or bitter or hateful with anyone. You know, Jesus said, the law states this, but I want you to go further in your heart. So when Jesus says, the law says you don't commit adultery. In other words, you don't have sex with someone else's wife or husband. Jesus says, you don't even look twice. We don't go there in our minds. That is challenging. Jesus was concerned with the internals of sin, the heart attitudes, as well as the external actions. And Paul would have, you know, it's, it, it, it was, it's easy if you've grown up as a Pharisee to tick off this list and say, well, I haven't worshipped any idols today. I haven't disobeyed my parents. I haven't lied. I haven't stolen. I'm doing fine. 
until Paul encounters this thing about covetousness, which is a much more internal process. It's an attitude of the heart. What that boils down to is being discontent with God because of what he's given us, or perhaps what he hasn't given us. We're talking self-pity. We're talking grumbling and envy and murmuring. Not simply wanting stuff, but an idolatrous longing for more. I need more wealth. I need more beauty. I need approval. I need popularity. It's not a sin to want those things, but it's a sin to get bitter and downcast because you don't have them. And that was what did Paul in. The realisation that sin could be an inward thing as well as an outward thing. You following me? When he only thought of sin as just keeping the rules, he could, he, could, he could do that, or rather not do it. When the reality comes that actually this is about failing to love God with all our hearts and failing to be content enough in what I have, then Paul really struggled. So the problem isn't the law. The law identifies the problem. The law can't save us. That was never its purpose. This is what it says in the bottom of your seat. But it can and must show us that we so need to be saved. Let's look at the next section. This is quite a well-known section. And it's uh, verses 13 to 25. And I'm going to read it. It's been discussed and debated this for a few years, a few centuries. Paul goes on. And I think there's a change here. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good. But I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I'm just going to break off and say, can anybody relate to this? Okay, it's not just me then. Now if I do, verse 20, now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me and it's waging war against the law of my mind. And it's making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is the subject of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Phew, thank goodness he got to that bit at the end. This is a tricky passage. There's change here. It's, it's different from the previous passage. And theologians have argued that Paul, who's this mega Christian apostle, can't possibly be describing his own current battle with sin in such candid terms. That he must be referring back to some time before he met Jesus. No, Paul, you can't tell me that that's going on with you right now. You can't tell me that that's really what you're experiencing 
This must be kind of in the days back when you were a Pharisee trying to keep the law then. Some have also suggested that Paul is just philosophically arguing on behalf of all humans. And I'm not going into the theology of it, but I'm, I'm pretty convinced that Paul is talking about his current struggle with sin. And so are most of the people that I'm reading. Paul is a believer who has been saved by Jesus. And yet this experience that he describes is very real. You can deduce that from the context of the passage and just have a look at this. This is the passage. You don't have to read it up there. It's a bit dense up there. But I've highlighted just all the I's and me's. Can you see that? Paul uses the word in 19 verses. He knows nearly 50 times he refers either to himself, either as I or me, as well as confessing his own personal struggle with sin, such as covetousness. The most compelling argument that this is what the theologians call present Paul, Paul speaking in the present tense, is that for me is that it describes an experience that I think all of us can relate to. The struggle with sin in our lives and our hatred of it. Have you ever met an atheist or a pagan who really desired to fill God's law and do things right and felt distraught by their own sin? I'm not sure I have. I want to just look at three points around this passage. And I realise time's ticking on. The first one is just about the battle within. Verse 23, I see another law at work within me. It's waging war against the law of my mind. And it's making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. There is a war waging inside every Jesus-following, God-believing Christian. It's a way of life. And for me, I don't know about you, but for me, this passage makes me feel happy and relieved. That is, that I am not the only one. A guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I've quoted him before, he said this in The Cost of Discipleship, which is a book he wrote. He said this, when all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. There's, this is an internal civil war between the will of God and the will of, the will of sin in our flesh. Between the two different operating systems, the old and the, and the new. Paul mentions the word sin or sinful 11 times and the word evil a couple of times as well. You see, in Paul's mind, sin is not simply just an absence of good. It's actually an active presence. He doesn't blame it on a demon or an evil spirit. He describes it as a distinct pattern of behavior. And the struggle is which of these two selves who are fighting one another within me, is my true self? Now, I know the answer to that question, and so do you, because it's there in chapter 6. We talked about it last time. Our true identity is with Jesus in us. And yet there's still a, a fight going on. Despite that truth, the power of sin within us can still have its effect. It can still be pretty full on. Paul himself testifies. He says, I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. He means that in myself, even as a Christian, I am incapable of keeping the law on my own. This internal struggle is a bit like a scene from the Lord of the Rings. How many of you are Lord of the Rings fans or aficionados? There's a guy called, I'm, I'm going to have to own up here. I, I, it's not my thing, to be honest. 
But um, apparently, can you move it on for me? This guy, Gollum, I don't think we've got time to show the clip. I'm sorry, Chris. But there's a, those of you who've watched the film will know the clip. And this guy, Gollum, has a kind of split personality thing going on. And there's a part of him that wants to do the right thing. And there's a part of him that really wants to do his own thing. And, if you've, and in the, Chris was explaining it to me, it's kind of more pronounced in the film rather than the book. But there's a great scene in the film where, you can look it up on YouTube later, where one part of Gollum is talking and then the other part is, and there's this whole, in, and the camera's very clever because it's the same character, but it's shown from different sides as he describes this scene. Another example I could find of this was um, with uh, those of you who are sports fans um, will perhaps heard of a, a guy called Brian Moore. He's a rugby player, played for England. Uh, a real hard man, actually. Um, he now commentates on uh, some of the rugby, and he's, un- he's merciless, actually. He's unforgiving. But it's really interesting, because I read his book a few years ago, and he was very honest about some of his own struggles that he'd had. And one of them was with a voice in his head that just kept telling him all the negative stuff. In fact, after this scene, he christened it Gollum. And so in his book, he describes it in the introduction, and then he says, and you know, this is happening, this is happening, and Gollum said this to me. I'm just going to read you a bit. This is after the, this is a bit from his book, and it's after the 1991 England Grand Slam win. So they've just achieved the Grand Slam. It's a brilliant moment. He says this, When the final whistle blew, a wave of pent-up emotion was released and several players jumped for joy. Others sighed with relief. As the crowd surged onto the pitch, they hoisted Will Carling aloft and carried him to the tunnel. I made my way into the dressing room and gave an emotional interview to Nigel Starmer-Smith of the BBC. I was then told that the rest of the players were going back outside to ascend the balcony used for presentations and accept the applause of a joyous crowd. As I went to join them, I was suddenly confronted by Gollum, and I felt I did not deserve to be part of this triumph. Why are you going out there? You know you were lucky enough, even, you know you were, you were lucky enough even just to get into the team. Do you deserve to be seen with the greats of the game? Though I tried to shake it off, what I knew, what they, so though I tried to shake off what I knew were illogical and frankly insane thoughts, I could not do so and did not join them. That is the reason I do not appear on the photographs of a celebrating England team that appeared on most of the front pages on the following day. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? See, our flesh loves sin and our spirit, which is alive to Jesus, hates sin. And unlike Gollum, we definitely do have a will to resist. And with God's spirit inside us, it is possible to win. Paul describes this as an internal battle. It's no longer myself who do it, it's sin living in me. It lives in me. Evil is right there within, Paul says. We might wonder how that's even possible. After someone's been converted, after someone's been saved and has met with Jesus. Has become a Christian changed anything? Spiritually, we've died to our old nature. And, becoming a new, and we have become a new creation in Christ. And everything has changed in our soul and in our spirit. But unfortunately, we do just still walk around in this body. And we will do until we get to heaven. And our body's been programmed over a number of years to do certain things. A bit like muscle memory. And so it's true that the law of sin can act. Sometimes it can say dominant for years and then something gets activated. When I was... Um, First married to Joe, I started my new job as a primary school teacher. And uh, I realized that there was a pattern going on over 
about the first couple of years that every half term or holiday, I would get ill for about one or two days. I would get poorly for about one or two days. Those of you who are teachers are nodding your heads. I used to call, call it half term disease. Okay. And I would just get, it was kind of like fevery. And um, after a while, I realized there was a connection. And it was sort of every time I stopped, I would get poorly. And I would have these flu-like symptoms and I'd be really sweaty and, and whatever in the night for a couple of, for a couple of days. And uh, my father-in-law, who's a retired doctor, eventually decided he would track down what this was. And he did a load of research, which is the sort of thing he loves to do. And he eventually diagnosed that it was a very rare um, little bit of malaria that had been around in my body since I spent two years in Africa as a little boy. And nothing had surfaced until such a time. So I went cap in hand to the doctor with a long letter from my father-in-law. That's really nice. <laughs> Hello, doctor. Here's my father-in-law's letter. He's telling you what's wrong with me. And the doctor was very good. And he said, well, come back next time it happens. Funnily enough, I stopped my job and it never happened again. But, um, but it's true that these things can stick around inside us, can't they? It's just part of who we are. Karl Barth was a really well-known theologian and he said this, Paul, good man that he was, longed to be without sin, but to it he was chained. I, but I too, in common with many others, long to stand outside it, but this cannot be. This is a famous line. We belch forth the vapours of sin. We fall into it, rise up again, buffet and torment ourselves night and day. But since we are confined in this flesh, since we have to bear about with us everywhere this stinking sack, we cannot rid ourselves completely of it or even knock it senseless. We make vigorous attempts to do so, but the old Adam retains his power until he is deposited in the grave. See, no one gets so mature that they don't see their sin anymore. And no one gets so mature that they don't struggle with their sin anymore. And in there is comfort that temptation and conflict and sometimes relapses into sin are actually consistent with somebody who's growing in, in Jesus. Some who's growing in Jesus. Battle is inevitable, but defeat is not. that really famous line isn't it he kind of says it two or three times differently he says the same thing in two or three different ways he says i want to do what i want to do i do no what i want to do i don't do and what i hate to do i do what's interesting about this is that paul takes personal responsibility for his own sin he's not trying to blame it on anybody or anything else he doesn't say oh the reason i sin is because i'm short or i'm short-sighted or I'm just a Jew who's being oppressed by the Romans. You know, it's quite tempting sometimes, isn't it, to blame, well, pretty much anything we can find for our sin. You know, I had a really poor education. My parents were just really tricky. I was dropped on my head. I'm too big. I'm too small. I'm too fat. I'm too thin. It's really important that we actually take responsibility for ourselves. Paul is not confessing that he's fallen away from God. He's not confessing that he's backslidden. This is a man who every day is being transformed into being like Jesus. It's actually Paul's proximity to God, how close he is to him, how much of God's presence he has in his life that exposes the sin in his flesh. Do you get me? 
It's his delight for God's law that arouses his hatred of messing up and falling into sin. When we press into God, sin presses into us. So if you're serious about following God, expect a battle. The great news is we're not alone in it. And the last part, the last two verses are the battle cry. You know, every army has a battle cry. Some famous ones in history. Japanese soldiers have this word, banzai. And it actually literally means long life. Long life as we go into battle. He-Man has one, it's called, by the power of Grayskull. <laughs> My personal favourite is um, Buzz Lightyear. To infinity and beyond. But the believer's battle cry in the midst of the waging war against sin is, God have mercy. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. The power of self-will cannot overcome the old Adam. I do need the one who is stronger than me. I do need him. And often our fault is that we try and look to ourselves to deal with our own sin. I mean, we just get so wrapped up in this thing, don't we? We just go round and round these circles. Oh, I'm such a mess. I've done it again and I'm just such a loser. What a wretched man I am. Paul follows. What a wretched man I am. How am I going to get out with this? What can I, how should I, should I just try harder next time? What, should, what do I need to do? No. Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Look, I'm looking to God. Thanks be to God. It's never too late to call out to God. It's never too late. You know, the, um, if you know anything about the organization Alcoholics Anonymous, they have these steps that uh, anybody who's trying to get free of alcohol has to work through. And the first three steps are there. I've written them for you. Firstly, we admit that we are powerless. Secondly, we believe that there's a power greater than us. And thirdly, we decide to turn our will over to that power, over to the care of God as we understand him. That's what the AA steps are. Those are the steps that we need to take ourselves. And I've just put down there again, I've mentioned this before, the five R's. It's a little tool. It's just a way to pray that's really helpful as we bring our own sin and our own stuff to Jesus for his forgiveness. So today, I want to encourage you. Why don't you stand together? We can come. We can come to God in our struggle. We can call to him in his mercy and give thanks to him for his love. Why don't we just be quiet for a minute? Holy Spirit, come, we pray. So, Holy Spirit, we welcome you and we thank you for your presence. Um, there's a number of people who've shared words with us, just things that they feel like God wants to do. And Chris is just going to read them in a minute. And then I, I want to do this. This is a little bit different. Um, I want to give us an opportunity to get free of stuff that's bu bugging us. Okay? And now, I haven't asked any of you guys, but I'm going to ask a few of you, all of those of you who were at the leaders' meeting with me last Sunday night, all of those of you who are here, if you could come out and help me with this in a minute, I'd be very grateful, and some others as well. I'm just going to ask a number of people to stand here and spread themselves around the room. And all I simply want to invite you to do, if it would be helpful to you and if you think it's the right thing, is to come 
and just use this opportunity. You can find somebody you don't know very well and just say, I'm struggling with and I'm confessing. Now, they're not going to ask you any questions about it. They're not going to go into any details about it. As you confess, you're going to get free of that stuff. They're simply going to pray for God's they're going to pray God's forgiveness over you. They're going to announce forgiveness over you and pray for God's blessing on you as you do that. Would that be okay? Can you guys come and do that? Is that, is that all right? Just spread yourselves around the front. And um, we'll find some more people if we need them. And just Chris is just going to read those um, words as well. So why don't you come up? We've got um, Mervyn and Claire here. We've got Brian and Hillary and um, Jenny as well. <clears throat> if you wouldn't mind just, just coming straight up as I read out these words, because we're a little bit over time, so I give you an opp- everybody an opportunity to receive prayer. We've also got, uh, someone mentioned uh, the words, Psalm 51 verse 17, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Okay. And also we've had uh, a word, someone said, uh, that just kneeling at the foot of Jesus and bringing your pride to him as a gift bringing your pride to him as a gift. And also, uh, Lynn said that there's some people here who are struggling with shame, and they can just bring that to the foot of Jesus as well. And um, Hilary mentioned earlier a word about pulling out one of those little plastic things uh, so that the batteries work in a, in a toy or something like that. And she felt that the little plastic thing, um, or like a little white cloth, wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It might have been a good thing, like work or family or, or school or whatever, uh, but, it, but it needs to it doesn't, can't get in between him and you. And you, you may be thinking, oh, this thing's a really good thing. You can't be asking me to put you before this and i think he might be asking you to do that that he's more important than everything in our lives whether they're good things bad things it's not to say they're not good it's just that that's what god's doing so if any of those things mean something to you why don't you come out to the front right now let's just come straight up don't delay and um if you would also like to uh come and just share with with one of these guys these are all trusted uh lovely people who won't judge you or condemn you in any way just want to pray with you and if you wouldn't mind doing that um and just all come up now at once and if you would like to receive prayer then um, you kind of stand at the front here and then we'll get some people to pray for you so let's do that now so thank you guys when you're ready and if you feel it this would help you just to come as and just to re-echo that's it do come they're not going to judge you they're not going to go into details it's not a long interaction you just simply have to say i'm struggling with i want to confess and at that point once you've said it they'll just pray god's blessing on you they'll speak forgiveness over you